All right, well, this morning we are continuing to study through a statement of faith, and we've explained a bit about what that is. It, you know, it's a fancy document that's got some weighty, important stuff in it. That's a real broken down version. Last week, uh, Mark Prater was with us, did an outstanding job helping us in a number of categories. But, but Mark jumped into two statements last week about the person and work of Christ. I'm going to back us up because we, we skipped one to have him do that one. And this one uh, we're going to highlight. But let me just highlight something about statements of faith because that can sound like some kind of creed language that's only in these places of religion, et cetera, et cetera. What, what, if, I, what if I picked up a statement of faith and defined it this way in your outline? If a statement of faith is some collection of important beliefs, they're beliefs, right? And they're important that explain to us how to get from a not-so-good place to a better place in our lives. What if that's what a statement of faith is? Well, then the reality is you and I encounter statements of faith every day, don't we? There are statements of faith with weighty things to be believed that are speaking to us about how to take our existence from one place that's not so great to a much better place, to a promised land, if you will. And, and when you and I interact with life, those thoughts are interacting with us, whether they come in a little booklet or not, uh, or whether they just say CNN at the bottom, they are packaged and coming to us. And they're saying to us, if you believe this, because it's really, really important that you get this belief right, then you can have this much better life. So if, if I could break out some statements of faith, you and I have been raised on an education statement of faith, right? We value education. Somebody along the way told us that was really, really important. Education seeks to overcome the curse of ignorance to provide a land of opportunity. And we kind of buy into that, right? We want to make sure our kids are educated. We want, we want education to do its thing because we believe we have a statement of faith. That education can take you to a better place. The American dream. You know, our, our country has got a Statue of Liberty in it. And there's lots of folks who have sailed past that on their way to coming to the land of opportunity. They came from all over the world, leaving poverty, oppression, difficult governments to come to a better place. It's a statement of faith that puts you on a boat to come to America to find a better way of life. Those folks believe something. May not have been in a little booklet, but they believe something. There's, there's a therapeutic statement of faith out there that's trying to interact with your past. What caused you to be the way you are? How'd you get here? Well, did you get mistreated? Is there something in your gene pool? Are you having a struggle to overcome some of the things that make you who you are? And then therapy tries to get in there and, and, and give you some things to believe so that you can have a better life. The, the civil rights movement is a statement of faith. It's an interaction with a condition that's not a good condition in the attempt to get to a better place. The Republican Party, the Democratic Party platform is a statement of faith. It stares out at our world and it says, hey, this isn't good. You know, the way the country is, the condition that it's in right now, the economics of the country, the way people are, the crime in the country, the, the social problems. But we've got some ideas here and they actually do put together a statement of faith, right? It's a party platform and you can actually read it and it's probably a lot longer than this. 
And it's kind of trying to tell you that you can go to a better place in life. So you and I are very familiar with statements of faith. And every day that we interact with the issues of life, we're interacting with a statement of faith. Right? So I came across an article this week by a man named George Yancey who was writing about racial issues who are in the news. Statements of faith in the racial issue category. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, can our Christian faith offer hope to break out of this mess and make real headway on overcoming racial alienation? Yes. To this end, we can look to our faith for unique insights that bring more light and less heat. Then he goes on and he points out four inadequate solutions. You know, so going back to my sand and rock illustration here, he's going to point out that there's some unique things that are like rock. But there's some stuff out there that's like sand. And he pokes holes in, the, in, in four of them. I'm just going to point out two of them here that he mentions. Here's one dose of sand. Humanism. And he says humanism isn't enough. He says humanists find great value in humans. They contend we can find rational answers to the problems before us. And science and education are seen as the paths toward a better society. Christians also find great value in human beings. But that value does not come from our capacities. Our value comes from being created in the image of an eternal God. All right, that's a statement of faith issue. Right? When you and I go to have a conversation about why human beings should be treated a certain way, no matter what color they are, we should be going back here and finding in this deeper understanding that people are made in the image of God. Therefore, God gives dignity to them. Both humanism and Christianity then address racism by appealing to the worth of humanity. But what differentiates Christianity from secular philosophies is our understanding of human depravity. We're fallen creatures in need of a redeemer. We are made in God's image, but we aren't basically good. Can I get an amen? Can I just tell you, not everybody here is convinced to amen that. Because when you tuned into the education statement of faith, it didn't bring that up with you. It stared out at human potential and it said, you know what? If we can just educate you, if we can just make you a better version of what you are, if we can give you better information, we can solve these social problems. The education statement of faith does not agree with this. Right, so when he says, we are made in God's image, but we aren't basically good, we're basically depraved. In our natural state, we're prone to be self-serving and ethnocentric. This problem isn't limited to any particular racial group. I mean, stare across the globe, right? I was, I was very intrigued by watching the nations enter the stadium in Tokyo, you know, the nation that has a reputation for having the, the most difficult racial issues in, in the world must be America. I mean, I don't know if I could find another nation that gets spoken of more as racial issues. But, you know, as I watched all the other nations, not all, but almost all the other nations walk into the stadium, they were all were exactly like each other. There wasn't an ounce of diversity almost in any nation. So it's interesting, you avoid some of these racial issues by avoiding people of a different race. And America doesn't do that. So it's one thing I got to say, we, at least we're trying to connect with each other. In our natural state, we're prone to self-serving and ethnocentric. 
this problem isn't limited to any particular racial group. It's a general proclamation about all of us. We don't have to be taught to dehumanize others and to seek advantage over them. Such tendencies are already natural and common among us. And then education, he says, education isn't enough. If humans are basically good, but just need the right moral education, then providing more education is the solution to racial alienation. We may want to educate people to ignore race. We may want to educate them to be anti-racist. Either way, our solution is to educate others to accept our ideas and so make a better world. Nancy goes on and says, education doesn't appear to be the answer to racism. If we don't deal with the core issue of our desire to have an advantage over others, then education will not be our salvation. I appreciated him saying, if we don't deal with the core issue, there are sand issues and there are rock issues. And when God goes to speak to us about the fact that our world is broken and our life is broken, he speaks a rock of revelation that goes to the core of who we are as human beings. And it's much bigger and it's much worse than what most of us are willing to acknowledge. You know, if you have little problems as a human being, then you need a little God. Or you might not need a God at all. You might just need to be educated. You might just need to try harder. You you might just need some social reform. You might just need the right person in a political office. If you got little problems. But if you have a big, giant, massive, unsolvable problem, you need God. And that's what the Bible's trying to convince us of. So please don't anybody, Mark joked about this last week, that he got to preach the good news, I get to preach the bad news. Um, Can I just tell you that this, this news today is about what you need. That's what it's about. It's about what you need. And if you get that wrong, then you won't ever seek for the right solution. You'll always be trying to fix something with the wrong tools and the wrong solution. All right, so this week, uh, we're on page 24 in our statement of faith. And the, the bigger heading is man's sin and its effect, right? So there's sin that came into our, our world and it had an effect. I'm just gonna read the second portion of that. There's, there's two subheadings. One is the origin of sin. The other is the effects of sin. Let me just live in the effects of sin with us. Page 24 says this. From the inherited corruption of humanity arise all the sins that we commit. All people are now by nature enemies of God, living under the power of Satan, subject to the curse of the law and deserving of eternal punishment. Moreover, the whole nature of man has been corrupted by the fall, and no part of man is untainted by sin. Although fallen people remain in the image of God and manifest the virtues of common grace. So let's not walk out assuming, well, so nobody can do anything decent. No, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. They are incapable, though, of pleasing God, meriting his favor, or, or, this is going to be critical today, 
freeing themselves from their bondage to sin. Their hearts are hardened. Their understanding is darkened. Their consciences are corrupted. Their spiritual sight is blinded and their deeds are evil. Therefore, All people are dead in sin and without hope apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And every one of those words is weighty and meaningful and important and dripping with Bible passages, by the way. Which is very important, right? Because the world's trying to teach us how to see ourselves, therefore how to see the solution to whatever problems that we have. And the Bible's trying to do that as well, and obviously the two are not agreeing. So I don't want to necessarily preach a concept from a booklet. I'm going to take you into the Bible and let us see this. So Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to navigate through this issue of the effect of sin that remains in our world. When you and I wake up every day to a world that is affected by the presence of sin, and therefore it needs a particular kind of solution. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This verse is going to take us into some incredibly good news in just a moment, right? We'll get to that starting in verse 4. But this verse explains to us this doctrinal issue, this statement of faith issue of, of what exactly is our problem? What exactly needs to be overcome in our lives? There's some things laid out in that passage right there. We're just going to live in this passage right here and just just look at it and see how our statement of faith, more importantly, how our Savior speaks to these things, right? So what needs to be overcome is the first thing I want to look at. So remember, every statement of faith is, is staring into a situation, and by faith, it's telling you what's there, what needs to be overcome, and it's trying to take you somewhere. So that's what we're doing today. Let's first look at what needs to be overcome. Well, in verse 1, we learn that there's a condition of death, spiritual, spiritual death. You were dead in trespasses and sins. All right, so if you're familiar with reading the Bible, this is an important doctrine that's in the Scriptures called the doctrine of depravity. It describes the condition of man when sin enters into our world. And if you're not familiar with that word depravity, I can't fully unpack it today. It's a subject all by itself. But it's an important word because it accurately describes the real condition that you and I are in. And when it goes to unpack it, this is what the Bible's terminology is going to use. It's going to use words like dead, blind, enslaved. Right? So... So when God comes and describes humanity, there is a condition that is dead. There is something that doesn't have life. It doesn't have animation. It doesn't have an ability. It can't. Right? So 
everybody can agree, dead people can't, right, fill in the blank. They can't do a lot of stuff, can they? It's just, well, why? Well, Keith, because they're dead. I, I lower my expectations for dead people. I don't know how you are, right? I just don't expect much of them because they're dead, right? So when we come to this passage, it informs us, hey, can you, can you kind of lower your self-expectation here? Because you're dead. And if you didn't get the dead part, how about this? You are blind as well. All right, well, I'm already dead, so I'm pretty sure I can't see anyway. So yeah, well, let's make sure you understand you can't see. You're blind. Now, this is where it gets even more complicated because when God describes the world, he describes a world that is, quote, shrouded in darkness. And you're blind. So just in case you thought, well, if I could see, then I could see. Well, no, even if you could see, you'd be shrouded in darkness. So if I shut all the lights off in this room right now and blocked out all the light, even if your eyes could see, they couldn't see. But bad news, I don't need to do all that because your optic nerve has been severed. You can't see whether the lights were fully on or not. You cannot see. And so this is a condition that we're in. This is highlighting what's my future going to be like? How am I going to interact with life? How am I going to deal with things? Because I'm dead and I'm blind and I'm enslaved, right? The Bible doesn't describe you as free. I love the way we throw this term freedom around like man's got a quote, free will. When did you get free? Or did you just not read the part of the Bible that says over and over and over again that we are enslaved to sin? We are owned and bound by sin. We don't get weekends off. We don't get any time off for good behavior. We don't overpower. Is there anybody who ever existed besides Jesus who overpowered sin in order to be free from it? And so this is a condition that depravity is trying to describe in our lives. So if I pick up a statement of faith, whatever one it is, the education, the Republican Party, whoever it is. Do any of those statements of faith provide a savior that solve this problem? Is there anything out there that solves the problem that I am spiritually dead? What are you going to do on Monday to solve that problem? What are you going to do on Tuesday to solve that problem? Right? I remember being a believer and, and early in walking as a pastor and interacting with substitute statements of faith, if you will. And I remember in the late eighties and the early nineties, the most popular statement of faith that was competing with church revelation or the biblical revelation was the therapeutic movement was coming on the scene pretty strongly. And it was coming on the scene in the form of pop psychology. So it was a little different than your hardcore psychology. So there was this massive movement. All of you will remember. And as I say it, you're going to wonder, where's that word gone? I don't hear it as much. There was a great movement of self-esteem in the late 80s and the early 90s that it became the go-to default situation. That if you bumped into a problem, right? Here's humanity having a problem. Hmm. This person suffers from low self-esteem. And that was the conclusion. So all the studies, all the counsel, all the advice wanted to bring a savior who could save you from your bad self feelings. And you just didn't feel good enough about yourself. If we could get you to feel good about yourself, then we could bring you to a better place, right? So that's the problem here. But you don't need a Jesus for me to feel good about myself. 
That's the difference between the biblical Savior and, and these other Saviors. It's interesting, Ray Ortland. This book says, recently, I did a search at Amazon.com for self-esteem, and I got 93,059 results. (laughs) Time after time, we have been told that self-regard is how we become well-adjusted and successful people. But is it true? In her New York Times article, The Trouble with Self-Esteem, Lauren Slater quotes a researcher who studied criminals and concluded... The fact is, we've put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have. And there's no evidence for the old psychodynamic concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves. It's a real complicated thing to unpack the phrase, I hate myself. Don't, don't take the bait. When someone says they hate themselves, what they're really saying is I'm, I'm really, really angry because I love myself and I can't get everybody else to love me. See, we, we, and I'm not saying that poor self-image, incorrect self-image is a solution, right? That, that's, that's foolish. God wants us to see ourselves correctly. But, but man's ideas come along with sand and say, build your house here. On, on, and, and people have stopped building their houses here. Anybody hear any popular self-esteem stuff lately? I mean, you hear a lot of that for two decades, but it's kind of gone out of style. So there's another condition that self-esteem doesn't help solve, neither does education help solve. It's the fact that we're spiritually dead. And then the Bible describes our death in an interesting way, right? In verse two and three, it, it, it says we're dead, but then it portrays us as fully alive. We were dead in which we once walked Right, so we're walking, we're following the course of this world, so we're following the world, and we're following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once, we lived in the passions of our flesh. So we're dead, but we're living in passions at the same time. We're dead, but we're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So it's an interesting form of death. We are dead in a way the Bible describes, but yet we're walking, following, we've got passions, and we're carrying things out. So we're dead in a particular way. We're dead to God, but we're not non-existent. It's not as though we don't have a will or have strong desires or goals and dreams. We've got all those things. We're just dead to God. The gospel has to solve the problem that we're dead to God, but we're alive to some other things. And the Bible describes that, that we've actually come alive to some other things. We've come alive to the devil. I know this is going to sound hooky, spooky, and weird, but it is the Bible, right? And so whether or not you and I got like, oh, yeah, we go, that's kind of weird. Uh, yeah, it is kind of weird. Can I just say there's a lot of weird stuff out there? But the Bible actually is describing something that happened to where we actually, when we embraced sin, we embraced the one who sold it to humanity. And we opened ourselves to him in some kind of an interesting way. John 8, verse 43. Jesus is trying to explain to people why they're not cooperating with him. Why they're not receiving. Why they're not like, oh, your teaching is the most awesome teaching we've ever heard. We want to bow down and worship you. We want to give our lives to you. You are the savior of the universe. That's not their response, right? And Jesus explains to them why. Verse 43, John 8, he says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot. 
you don't have the capacity to understand what I'm saying. It's because you cannot bear to hear my words. So not only can you not understand, but you can't stand what I'm saying. You are of your father, the devil, and your will. You remember that free thing you thought you had? Can everybody read this carefully and stop using those two words together? Free will. Use it this way. Free Willie was a whale that tried to get out of an aquarium. But don't use free and will in the same sentence unless you understand. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. How free is your will? Your will wants to do the same things that are in the devil's desires to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And John's going to go on in 1 John and unpack some of this a little bit further in 1 John 3 verse 7. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now listen to this. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And listen, we know Jesus is going to the cross. We know he's going to shed his blood for our forgiveness. But the Bible also says the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Question, is there another statement of faith out there that's got a savior in it who can destroy the works of the devil? Can the education statement of faith destroy the works of the devil? I get you a degree, a master's, PhD from Harvard. Will that destroy the works of the devil in this world or in your life? Won't touch it, will it? Can the Republican Party platform, can the civil rights movement, can any of that destroy the works of the devil? Do you understand? Jesus came into the world to do something. And the need of my life is to believe that what he came to do matters. And then I need it. I need someone to destroy the works of the devil because I just got explained to me somehow in a way I don't fully get my will got all tangled up with the devil's will back in the garden of Eden. And when he goes to work, he goes to work out there and strangely in here as well, because the Bible identifies my desires, the stuff apart from God on the inside of me. It identifies those desires as being oriented around him. Who's going to separate me from him? A good book that I read? Right, right. Can I just, even for Christians, I know I, 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 this is mostly speaking to those of us who have not come to know Christ in this condition. But, but can I tell you a good marriage book can't save your marriage? A parenting seminar? Do you understand depravity drives its way into us understanding our need for the living God in every one of these categories? You need a Jesus who destroys the works of the devil for your marriage to survive and thrive. You don't need you with really, really, really good, strong intentions and a book. Although we recommend books. But, but please understand, we recommend books because we understand this doctrine. That your real help is coming from the spirit of God coming to life in you and giving you abilities that you don't have on your own. Because apart from him, you are dead. 
in your trespasses. And so is your spouse. Work all you want on that dead wife of yours. (laughs) She ain't changing. I'm just telling you. But what if God brought her to life? What if God was at work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure? See, this, this is the God we need, right? This is the gospel. He goes on and he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Why is this guy in this passage doing anything different? Because the life of God has come back to him. He has been born of God. This statement of faith describes a need that we didn't have God. That was our problem. And when God came on the scene and we were born of God, things begin to change. So our allegiance, our connection with the devil has to be solved. Our our allegiance to ourself has to be overcome. We're fully alive to us apart from God fully alive to me, right? John chapter three is an interesting revelation of the heart. Verse 19, it says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. These aren't flattering things, are they? But they, they put me in a posture to need God, to really be God to me. I'm not just, you know, I'm not just having a bad day. I'm, I'm not just the victim of somebody's bad doing or somebody's influence in my life. You know, the Bible comes along, and as nice of a guy as I think I am, the Bible comes along and says that I'm one of these men in God's creation who love the darkness rather than the light. Because our deeds are evil. Have you ever done anything evil in your life? then you fit this description. And therefore the truth about my need is that there's something in me that loves the darkness and has an aversion to the light. And that's what death is about. And that's got to get solved somehow. My problem's got to get overcome here. You know, Ray Ortland says, John's words about loving the darkness also help us to see ourselves at another level as a culture. One of the marks of our times is that we redefine evil things as good. We change the labels as if that could change the realities. We tell ourselves we're better than we really are. This too is loving the darkness rather than the light. You know, one of the things I'm noticing about statements of faith today is uh, they're almost all based in making sure you get the victim and the victimizer right. That's almost where they start. They want to figure out who on the playing field is the bad guy and, and, and who's the good guy. Who's, who's victimizing people? Who's taking advantage of them? Um, can I just rescue you from wasting your time getting lost in that discussion? If, if you will do something besides stare at the modern moment, why don't you back up in history? Back up as far as you can get in history and just trace people out. What you're going to find in that history if you do this is that whoever was the, the, the person being victimized, give them some time. That group will become the victimizers. Just give them some time. Give them an opportunity. They will take advantage of someone else. They will create rules and a structure and a system and a government and a society that is to their advantage at somebody else's advantage. Even though they formerly came from one where they were the one being taken advantage of. 
Welcome to America. Do you remember the guys who left England? Now, part of them were sort of social outcasts, by the way. They wanted to be, they were wannabes. There were a lot of people in England who wanted to be living the royal life over there in England. And, and the royalty didn't want to share with them. It's like, we're not willing to give you any land. We're not going to make you famous here. Why don't y'all go find somewhere else? How about y'all go to that little colony thing that we're creating over there across the sea? So they kind of shooed a lot of these people out. So when they got over here, they didn't like the tyranny and the oppression of King George. So they decided we're going to break free of the tyranny and the oppression of King George. But did you notice they didn't mind tyrannizing and oppressing other people? Right? Colonial slavery. How could you notice that you didn't like being under the oppression of a ruler, but you don't mind turning around and oppressing another group to be slaves for you? See, those who were victimized become the victimizers, right? This is what's, and and why is that true? Well, because this is what's true of humanity. We walk according to the course of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We live in the passions of our flesh and we carry out the desires of our body. So at some point, that is going to be what I'm true to at somebody else's expense, right? This is the world according to God. It's a little different than what we hear, right? In the philosophies of the world though, right? So I think I wrote this in your outline, a statement of faith that seeks to eradicate all the individuals and structures of power as a means of solving man's problem and ushering in a promised land existence is misinformed. It will never happen. That's a false savior. You know, that statement of faith highlights something. It uses the word corruption. This is, this is a defining reality. Our condition as human beings, we are corrupted. This is what the statement of faith says. Remember, God originally created man innocent and righteous without stain or corruption, right? If you want to educate that guy, that'll work. Because he's not got no corruption in him, right? So God can educate this person and, and he's going to be fine. In this state, Adam and Eve enjoyed a fullness of life and communion with God, delighting in him and in, and in his righteousness, while yet capable of transgressing. Man's trespass of God's command brought enmity with God and the curse of death. Because God had established Adam as the representative head of the human race, his sin was imputed to all his descendants, bringing guilt condemnation and death to humanity. Therefore, we are all by nature corrupt and inclined to evil from conception. That's a very different, see, that's a rock revelation. We are corrupt and inclined to evil. That's a rock of revelation from God. So whether I feel good about myself, whether I've built my self-esteem, whether I've, I've done something to regard myself highly, the Bible comes along and says something about me being corrupted and inclined to serve my own interest and tangled up with the desires that the devil brings into this world. That's my condition. That's got to be overcome. And then this passage reveals this word, the wrath of God to us. It says that we are by nature, verse 3, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How does that get overcome? What what exactly is that? 
you know, as unpopular as this may be, it's still what the Bible says. That there is a judgment that comes to every human being will stand before the creator in a posture where he will be the judge over his creation. The Bible clearly teaches this. Matthew 25 describes this day in verse 31. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, the Bible's not presenting that like, hey, you guys cool with that? Does that sound like the kind of God you're all right with? Because I I know today's modern, you know, 50 years ago, an audience doesn't respond to that verse the same way the way it does today. Today, it's like, well, Keith, I don't think you get it, but... Whatever concept of God you're trying to sell me, it answers to me. And I don't believe in a God who would do that sort of thing. Uh, You know, have you come in contact with the thought that there are a lot of things that doesn't matter whether you believe in them or not, they're still true? Taxes, obnoxious neighbors. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. I don't believe in that. Well, you know, that doesn't change a lot of things. And that doesn't change this, that maybe there's something about the character and nature of God that is so perfect, so righteous, so beautiful that there's no way sin will ever go unjudged by this God. And maybe I just don't understand how all that works together. But God clearly says this is true. Hebrews 9 says that just as it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So we are in need. This condition of death has put us under a curse and we are by nature now children of wrath. We are part of the human race that's going to face this judgment from God. And and there's no statement of faith or savior out there that can save us from that except one. And then this, this passage here unpacks the need to overcome our human capacity. Our human capacity is insufficient. We don't have it in ourselves to ever save ourselves, ever, ever. We must be saved by the grace of God. God must take it on himself to figure out how to fix what's broken about us because we can never do it. We cannot do it, right? So we've got this terrible bad news here. And look in verse four. We've got this wrath image. We're following the, the, the devil and the course of this world. And then it says in verse four, but God, right? We get our eyes off of ourselves now and it's on God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when everything we just said was true, this God still loved us and he made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And then he unpacks that further in verse eight. 
by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Rich, pretty easy to convince us of that because we just got educated that we don't have the capacity for it to be our own doing. We are dead. We are blind. We are enslaved. We're not fixing this problem. So clearly it's not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, God in this moment shifts the emphasis and and you and I must see the solution to our life problem has to shift the emphasis. You and I have to now get out of the picture and see something exclusively about God. We needed to see our need, but we are not part of the solution. We are clearly the problem. So this Bible verse moves with a a great transitive element here. I won't read all of Ray Ortland's quote there, but it's in your outline. He says, the Bible simply changes the subject to how much God loves the undeserving. In other words, the gospel helps us to stop barricading ourselves against God because it's evil people in denial whom God loves so massively. This is what I love about the gospel. And, and this is why when people don't like to hear the bad news, I, I, I understand it's because you don't fully get the gospel. I, I don't know if I'm very successful at completely disqualifying you and draining you of every ounce of hope that you might have apart from the gospel. But that is what I'd like to do to you. I would like to make you feel so desperate, so alone in the universe, so helpless and hopeless in your life so that you would walk out of this place going, good night, why in the heck did I come here today? So that then you could have ears to hear the Bible say, but God being rich in what? In mercy. So you got nothing to bring? That's a good thing because the God who solves your problem, he's rich in mercy. Well, how much does mercy cost? Well, it's mercy. It doesn't cost anything. You can't purchase it. The second you can purchase it, it stops being mercy. So whatever God was rich in moments ago, if you got an ounce of purchase going on, you're out of the deal. You're done. So you could be here today saying, man, you just put me in touch with how terrible I am. Good. Terrible enough for you to be totally bankrupt. Terrible enough for you to give up any attempt and hope that you can fix this yourself through getting better educated, voting for the right candidate, being a part of a movement, you know, whatever it is that's out there. Can I just tell you the amount of anger that's in our world gives away the fact that people believe this stuff too much. Can I get an amen? The amount of anger that's out there is because people believe these things too much. They're like idols. They're going to rescue me. They're going to fix my world. They're going to fix me. And you don't agree? You're the kind of person that's causing all these problems in the world, from global warning to vaccination problems. Everything's bad because of you. And I'm angry. Um, When you and I read the Bible, humanity is always passing through its set of difficulties and its set of problems. And there's common grace from God that touches many, many, many of them. But it always brings us back to the problem in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead. Do you understand? Your problem is much bigger than your, your politics. It's much bigger. 
you were dead. You were going to need a God to overcome that. You were going to face God in judgment. You had severe issues going on. You didn't have the ability to right yourself. And once I get convinced of that, then I can welcome the rest of this chapter. I can welcome the grace of God into my life. Listen, this is what God-centered theology is about. It is about the feature that God is the one initiating and intruding into our world, into our lives. Can I just say, even as Christians, I don't think we get that very well. I think we, we tend to struggle and maintain that somehow we are the initiators. We are the ones. God is the responder. We are the initiators. So somehow we've got to have some capacity. We've got to do this thing right. And see, you bring that into your Christian life. And, I, and I almost can promise you that there's some people here who don't believe the next verse I'm going to read to you. Because like when you became a Christian, you think God changed all the rules. Now it's all about your capacity. Now it's all about what you do. Now you are the initiator and you're going to intrude into God. And then God's going to finally bless you and respond to you. Oh, and the reason why he can't bless you is because you're not doing X, Y, or Z. Can you back up? Can you press rewind and get back over here where you were dead and blind and enslaved and doing nothing? And God did what? initiated and intruded and chased you down and somehow won the day. At the end of the day, you're scratching your head going, I have no idea why I'm saved apart from the mercy and grace of God. Isn't that a great phrase, that, that old phrase, apart from the grace of God go I? That's a great phrase. I am the worst of sinners in this world. And I am apart from the mercy of God, which just makes me go, God, why were you merciful to me? Why? I could have just kept going the way I was going. I could have just stayed blind and destructive and harmful and self-seeking and bound up with the desires of the devil. But God, right? The mercy of God intrudes into our lives. So, so be, you know, be, be careful about, you know, even as you come to Christ, what, what is your hope for tomorrow. See, the doctrine of depravity and what this teaches in this statement of faith, it informs what I think God's going to do next in my life. Even though last week was really bad and last year I really fell short and, and I had it together in a couple of categories. I did some really terrible things in another. But, did, you know, I skipped this verse, but don't you skip it when you read it. Verse six, he raised us up with him, right? This is all being done by mercy. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, Lord, why'd you do that? Why'd you seat us in heavenly places? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. You know, if, if you're a guy who likes to do target practice and strangely what God did was he set us up as a target. He put us up in a heavenly place. He set us up in a target and he shoots one arrow after another of his kindness and his grace toward us. It's like we're target practice for him. He's got this grace that he just wants to pour out on us and he sets us up like a target and he spends all day long going thump, 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 thump. Why is he doing that? Well, because I set myself up there and I had a good week. I got to be on the platform. I got to be shot at that week because I, I've been really doing well lately. That's not what you read, right? We were dead. The next 
Next thing you know, by the mercy of God, we were targets. And God's a good shot. It doesn't matter how much you move, he can still hit you. For the rest of the age, right? All right, one last thing. Kurt, you can come back up, buddy. So statements of faith are not only helping us overcome some bad situation, which we just saw, but they're also trying to move us to a better place, right? There's, there's a future being offered to us. Well, what's the future being offered by this statement of faith found in this passage here? Well, when we get saved, right, the, the saving act of God, it involves a lot of things, but nothing, nothing more important than this. We are reconciled to God. The great goal, desire, and passion of God himself was to reconcile us to himself, to a place of affection and intimacy and relationship with him that would be real and would touch us every day of our lives. Listen, listen, that death thing, the day that that death happened, remember what preceded that was God formed man out of the earth and then he breathed his life into him. And then it says man became a living soul. Man came alive with the breath of God, but then man died. And what was it that died in him? It it was the life that God gives. And what happens here is that when we get saved, that life comes back to us. I, I don't know what else I'm looking for in this world, but that was what God is looking for more than anything else. You know, maybe I won't live in a certain neighborhood. Maybe I won't get a certain degree. Maybe I won't travel and see the whole world. Uh, maybe I won't have a lot of things in this life. But when God looks and says, what does he long for for us? He longs for the return of his life to us, that his life might be in us. And then it gets personal, right? I don't want to overlook this because I think this is super meaningful. Verse 10. We are, right now, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, that's a collective statement, but it's an individual statement. How about the God who restores that? who whatever it is that that you were intended to be in this life is in this restoration. We are his workmanship. We are crafted, built, put together by God, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. How about that? God looked at your life and before you existed, put together a game plan, a functional list of life activities, of things that you are going to do. And for us to walk in them. So, so you could be here this morning and may, maybe you're detached. And I had a sense to pray for people this morning who are detached from a sense of hope in their life. So can I just tell you, right now is that moment where in eternity past, God looked to you with the hairs on your head and the talents that he gave and the life that he constructed and he put you right here and and the steps right in front of you, they're filled with works that he has ordained for you. This is part of the restoration that God brings. There's no other statement of faith and there's no other savior out there that who can give that back to you. But this one. So this morning, I want to pray for us in, in a couple of ways. 
maybe some folks who are watching by live stream while we still have live stream, just warning you. I don't know, maybe, maybe you walked in here, maybe you've been living life this past week and you feel the, the weight and heaviness of life. You feel vulnerable. You feel the uncertainty of where you are. You've been through a difficult season. You've lost some things in your life. What do you need? I asked you that. I just pulled you on the side, got you by yourself after the meeting. I said, man, what do you really need right now? Where would you go with that? Would you run towards something that something besides God can solve? I need to make a payment on something. I need a better health diagnosis. What do you really need? this Bible verse takes you to what you and I really, really need. I need this dead condition of my life to be solved. That's my greatest need ever. I need life. And, And maybe you've been around the Bible. Maybe you've been around church. Maybe you've listened to some things and maybe you're trying to be a decent person. Glad for that. Can I just ask you, do you feel like at some moment you came alive with the life of God? I mean, came alive. It's like something has entered into your life. Like, like somebody just breathed something into you. And all of a sudden, I mean, just like, you, like things took on different meaning to you. And there was color in the world. There was a sense of purpose in my life. And there was a lifting of my emotion. And, and just life felt a bit different to me. So if you can't describe that moment, it may be because you've just sort of gotten around some of God's ideas, but you really haven't let his life back in. And that's what he's wanted to give you. He wants to give you life. So I want to pray for you this morning. I want you to stand up with me. Let's, let's go before the Lord. Let's, let's have a conversation with him, you and, and him talking for a minute. God, I pray for those who are gathered. I pray for those who may be watching. Lord, I know it'd be great. I think what most of us feel like it would be great if we just didn't feel like there were any needs in our lives. And so we start at an early age trying to solve the needs and we solve them through effort and through connections and through people and family and relationships and education and good jobs. And Lord, we just, we take up this role of solving our own needs. And then we, we read this passage in the Bible and we find out about a need that we can't solve. One that only you can. Lord, that's not bad news. That's the good news. It's you convincing me to stop trying to look for something apart from you. God, I pray for every person who may be here this morning or watching. Would you help hearts to be open to receiving your life this morning? Would help us be convinced that what we ultimately need in our lives is you. So if you'd like for that to happen, just turn to the Lord in faith. Jesus Christ came to this world. 
as a substitute, a sacrificial offering in order to create forgiveness in this world. That's where forgiveness comes from. Apart from him, there would be no forgiveness. But forgiveness is available now. And we can receive it by turning to Jesus Christ and saying, I believe in you. I believe in what you did. I believe in your life and your death on the cross and the resurrection power of God in your life forgives me of my sins and gives me new life. Ask God for that life. Ask him right now. Say, Lord, that's why you came. That's what the resurrection was about, was to give life to us who didn't have life. Well, this morning, Lord, I, I want that life. I'm turning to you, I'm not turning anywhere else. And I'm not turning to me. I'm turning to you. Would, you. would you give me your life inside of me? Would you work in me and breathe in me? Lord, I, I need your joy. I need your direction. I need the works that you say you'd given my life to be. I, I need your purpose in my life. So God, today I open my heart to you. I receive your life into my life today in Jesus' name. God, I pray for some who are here this morning who, who, who life has begun and has been feeling like it just lacks hope. Or it lacks a sense of adventurous future. Like there's something in tomorrow and there's something in next week. There's something in this season that I'm in that, oh, is there something, Lord? Because it doesn't feel like there is. But God, you said something. This salvation has brought to us grace that has prepared a future for us every day of our life. We are your workmanship created in Christ for good works. Monday works and Tuesday works and Wednesday works of this very week, Lord. You have prepared something for us that we should walk in it. Lord, thank you for bringing back to us what was lost in our dead condition, a purpose for our lives. Every day of our lives, you have a purpose for us. So Lord, if we have lost that in, in the noise of a pandemic, God, would you restore that awareness to our hearts, Lord? Would you awaken us this week with an awareness that we are workmanship. We have been created. There is purpose from you traveling with us into every day that you have intended for us to walk in. Lord, may we walk in them. May we enjoy them. May they be to us refreshing and delightful. Lord, may they bring you glory and bringing you glory. May that bring us joy in our lives. So Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for what started sounding like bad news ends in incredible good news. Lord, this is the gospel and we are grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. All right. Remember next week, next week, nine o'clock breakfast. If you want to come have breakfast with us, if you want to sleep in a little bit and not come have breakfast with us, it's up to you. 10 o'clock. You get to sleep in late. You early guys, 10 o'clock is the service 10 to 1130. So we'll see you guys next week.